0: There it
1: is! Five seconds left in the You believe in Yes! Unbelievable! You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series. If you like these shows, please share them with your friends and colleagues and rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps new listeners find us. As the world rebuilt after World War II and the Cold War began, so London hosted the 1948 Olympics in a bomb-damaged capital. The Cold War consumed the next four decades, and the Olympics became not only the biggest show in town, but the model for other regional games. But according to David Goldblatt, the Olympics are fundamentally flawed. Well, I don't know if it's quite that they're
0: fundamentally flawed, but um, at the heart of... Of, uh, of the Olympics is the notion that it is a non-political organisation that sport is somehow and should be separate and free from politics, and that the IOC and the Olympics are the exemplar of you know what sport is and should be, and that their kind of you know moral and ethical code is the one um, you know that sport should aspire to. And um, my argument is that actually there are many ways of thinking about sport. The IOC and the Olympic model is just one of them. It achieved dominance in the world not because of the moral probity or the quality of argument of the organisation, but by political success and struggle. The other element, of course, that is completely absurd about the Olympics is the notion or the importance of amateurism. And this is ridiculous because it is based... Um, publicly on a complete misreading and misunderstanding of the nature of athletic cultures in ancient Greece and speaks to the kind of hapless shoddy third-rate scholarship that passes for thinking on this in the international Olympic movement and continues to this day. So let me just reiterate as firmly as I possibly can that although at the Olympia Uh, In ancient Greece and ancient Rome, there were no cash prizes. There was a vast circuit of athletic competition and sports people who earned their living and made money playing sport. And none of them would have been excluded from Olympia on that basis. Moreover... It is absolutely clear from the ancient sources that a prize and a win in Olympia could then be parlayed into money, power, status or amnesty on leaving Olympia with your laurels. And that was not considered disgraceful or morally problematic in any way. It has, you know, the point of amateurism in the 19th century is that this is a form of class exclusion and class segregation. And it is testament, I would say, actually, and part of the problem is that historians and academics and intellectuals for the last 80, 90 years have not been engaging with this and not getting on their case. And that's why this project and the whole, you know, this sort of serious scholarship is not just, this is not just ivory tower stuff, I would argue. This actually would actually matter out in the world. All of that said, there are the flaws of the Olympics. On the other hand, there's something really extraordinary about the Olympics in 1948. I mean, here we are. Who would think that after the second great global conflagration that anyone would think that international sporting competition could make a real contribution to the maintenance of peace or that there was some connection? And yet in 1948, you know, um, and I'm quite a cynic about these things, but I read, you know, what someone like Emil Zatopek uh, the great Czech runner is saying when he's in London, he's going, God, after all that misery, that firestorm, just to be here with other people from other cultures in sport, this is amazing. This is, and um, I think, you know, it's worth remembering that the Olympics can and continue and does do that. The other thing I would say about the Olympics and the Cold War is that, um, the Cold War kind of makes the Olympics in some way. I mean, in 1948, as you say, and as I've just said, you know, the, its ideological credentials are thin. You know, the hosts are completely broke. You know, I mean, the British Organising Committee is writing to competitors saying, "It's okay, guys, we've got the soap covered, but you're going to have to bring your own towels." I mean, this is penury. What the Cold War does when it seriously becomes part of the fabric of the Olympic Games just turns it into amazing ratings. I mean, the Olympics, you know, it's quite hard to comprehend in some ways as a consumer and viewer, you know. All these different sports, all these different competitions, da 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 And like once the Cold War comes along, it's like, ah, that's the competition. Good guys, bad guys, depending on, you know, on what side of the divide you're on. I mean, the essential and necessary dramatic structuring device. And because I think, you know, what the Olympics, what sport does, above all, is generate stories. And we all love watching it and they're in the moment. But what gives it resonance, what gives it cultural weight beyond the moment, is that these things are turned into narrative. And narratives, you know, for most folks most of the time, we need, you know, we need a clash of participants. We need drama. Uh, And the Cold War brought that, I think, to the Olympics in a way that that nothing else had done before. Um, And so, paradoxically, an organisation devoted to spreading international harmony um, through the performance of uh, of sport is actually massively boosted by showcasing conflict and opposition because, you know, uh, it makes for good storytelling.
1: People want to be there. They want to test themselves against the best. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, I mean, I think the high-performance
0: sport aspect, because it's worth remembering again, you know, before the 1950s, although people are breaking world records and there's a sense, you know, Eddie Tolan is the first man to be called the world's fastest man um, by the American sports press when he wins the 100 metres in 1932 at the LA Games. I mean, that sense, you know, of this is the very best, this is the leading edge of sport, actually is relatively new in the Olympics. I mean, you know, back in 1896 or 1900, you're really not watching the best. You're watching a bunch of hopeless gentlemen with big moustaches prance around. But by 1948, 1952, where you've got serious sports organisations and the major powers, the actual, you know, you really are seeing world records broken. So I think that's another element of the uh, of the appeal of the Olympics is you know seeing the best of the best and of seeing you know world record breaking stuff and so on. So I think that is part of the appeal. And again, the Cold War sort of you know dynamise dynamise is uh, that. I think the other thing is that without the Olympics, sport would have probably been less significant as a front in the Cold War because although there would have been all the kind of conflicts um, and opportunities to tell stories about yourself and your enemy through the Ice Hockey World Championships or um, the Gymnastics World Championships or whatever it might be, the Olympics, you know... um, Again, you need great storytelling, you need uh, great enemies, you also need a theatrical stage, you know, and that's what the Olympics increasingly offers. Um, And then, of course, by the time you get to the 1960s, once television arrives, we're into a whole different scale of soft power projection through the Olympic Games. And again, it's worth remembering in an era where you know you can flick the telly on and watch 27 different sporting events from every continent in the country, how rare these moments were. I mean, and when the Olympics finally goes live in colour, Mexico 1968, certainly in the global north, I think this takes the kind of significant, the sort of symbolic significance and weight of the Olympics to a completely new level.
1: That's when it becomes a, a global showcase isn't it that's where it becomes the stakes are raised so high so that the cold war hostilities conflicts rivalries are played out in front of the world yeah i mean i don't think the conflicts are
0: any sort of greater i mean but it's an opportunity to kind of dramatize them again and what i find particularly interesting about 1968 is it's so interesting is that at the same time that the global powers realise that television allows them to send all sorts of interesting soft power messages around the world more effectively than they've ever done before. So people from below realise the same. And 1968, you know, obviously the Black Power salute of John Carlos and Tommy Smith sort of overshadows in a way everything. Um at the games. But it's worth remembering that, you know, Vera Kaslavska, I think you pronounce her name, who's the fantastic Czech gymnast, wins many gold medals. This is in obviously in the wake of the Prague Spring. And she realizes the power too. And what she does is when she gets a silver medal in one of the events and the Soviet national anthem is being played for the gold medalist, she looks down and away like this. Tiny, tiny, tiny gesture to indicate her resistance to the Soviet Union on this case and her career is destroyed after that for this single tiny brilliant gesture. Um, and that's I think is a really interesting it's like it takes us away from the cold war but it's a recognition of just how potent you know the medium of the Olympic Games for sending a political messages is, is that the moment it's gone global and color you know other folks are recognising, and of course, the ultimate moment is 1972, where um, ISA, as he was known, the, um, the public name of the main negotiator of the Black September terrorists at the Munich Olympics, is in conversation with the mayor of the Olympic village about, you know, can we... What can we do? And, uh, you know, they come to a stalemate. But ISA says, please tell the people of um, West Germany heartfelt thanks from the Palestinian people for creating such an extraordinary stage on which we can project our message.
1: Would you say then, David, that the Olympics were a force for good or a drawbridge into either side a way of keeping the dialogue going when each side in the Cold War is arming itself with nuclear missiles and the capacity to destroy the world, however flawed they were the Olympics kept everybody talking Did it keep everybody talking? I
0: mean it's been really interesting listening to other scholars and accounts, you know, on a very kind of ground level amongst athletes about how little talking actually Was going on, and how much kind of shepherding of athletes by secret services on the uh, on the Soviet side was going on, and how rare actually those sort of like you know person to person people's diplomacy dimension of the Olympic Games, and that's something you hear mentioned quite often. But my sense is actually sort of remarkably, actually remarkably little. I mean, the most significant encounters as far as I can see is the way in which um, Americans, particularly American weightlifters, learn to use testosterone and then anabolic steroids. I mean, I certainly think there was a global culture of doping and drug taking in which both sides were learning behind the lines from each other. I mean, good or bad, I'm very reticent to use Good and bad um, about the Olympics in this context, that sort of moral, moral dimension. I mean, I'm slightly a plague on both, or not on both your houses, but like on the IOC's house as well. I mean, what I will say is that the Cold War was very good news for the Olympic movement in some senses, and that it turned what was still a sort of, you know, slightly Jim Carner um you know amateurish spectacular affair into something really gigantic really significant i think it was very good for the I, uh, for the IOC um i think interestingly i think it also signals the death of a certain kind of olympism i mean one of the most important aspects of the interaction of the uh, olympics and the Cold War is that when the Soviet Union applies in 51 and joins in 52 and goes to the first um, games, there's a really two big questions for the IOC. One is about recognising that the dudes who are going to be on the IOC from Russia and these other places are not going to be their own men. And as Siegfried Edstrom sort of says in his letters, I mean, We don't know any of these people. How can we found our kind of people? And it's like they actually have to accept it's going to be you're dealing with you're dealing with a different beast here. You're going to have to accept a government appointee, you know, and you're going to have to accept that these aren't people who come from your narrow social circle and share your particular ideological view of the world. And I think the IOC is very smart in that. Again, you know, for a very conservative organization, it can be very lithe. And they say, you know, if we are going to be the preeminent global sporting organisation and global sporting spectacular, this does not work without the Soviet Union. We simply have to, whatever price we pay, we have to have that. Um, And so... And the rewards are great. You know, the Olympics then does become this great and extraordinary dramatic spectacular. But the quid pro quo for this is that they also have to turn a blind eye to Soviet amateurism, in inverted commas. And it is absolutely clear that um, Siegfried Edstrom, who is the president of the IOC in the 40s and early 50s, and then his successor, Avery Brundage, Understand that all of those colonels in the army are not out on military manoeuvre, but they're rowing all day, um, and they take the they take the decision in effect. Don't you know? Don't ask. Don't look. Don't want to know. Um, and while that, um, obviously you know, brings great rewards to the IOC and the Olympic movement. It means that for the next 20 years, the desperate attempt to maintain the fiction of amateurism outside of the communist bloc makes them look like the hypocritical idiots that they are. I mean, Avery Brundage by the late 1960s, you know, is apoplectic with rage because skiers have got logos um, you know, on uh, on their equipment. Um, and meantime, you know, the entire Soviet and East German team are state employees. Um, and while he can't see the issue, the rest of the world, and athletes, all athletes, just go, you must be joking, mate. And I think it destroys the sort of moral authority in many ways of the IOC because it just looks like a bunch of hypocrites. So I think that's in a way, I don't think the Soviet Union quite meant for that to happen, but you know, the amateur gentleman and that model of sport is destroyed by a kind of pincer movement of the kind of commercial sport of the capitalist West, but you know, this, in effect, this hidden professionalism of the communist
1: bloc, which destroys the moral authority of the IOC. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Center's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org.